your Bibles, will you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we shall read verses 35 through 49. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 49. The Apostle Paul begins a new section on the resurrection of the body. He just told us in verses 12 through 34 about the resurrection of the dead. And so this morning we want to consider from dust to glory the resurrection of the body. So verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel or a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And may God bless to us the reading of his inspired and his holy word. Let's pray together. Our heavenly Father, in the quietness of this moment, we draw near to you, our holy God. We have sung of the glorious accomplishment of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, risen, conquering Son. And we pray, gracious Father, that all of us this morning may know and may find life only in the person of your Son. Thank you for your word. Give us ears to hear and hearts and minds to believe and to receive your word. May Jesus be glorified and praised in our midst this morning, we pray. We ask it all then in his name and for his sake. Amen. Now, let me remind you that in the previous section, the Apostle Paul was giving a series of arguments to demonstrate the validity or to prove the resurrection of the dead. And he came to three conclusions, or perhaps we might say he derived three motivations out of the arguments that he gave. And you remember that his opening argument, of course, in verses 1 through 11, has to deal with the, deal with the historical event of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, that Jesus himself is risen from the dead. And then, as he began verse 12 through verse 34, he gave a series of arguments that were logical and theological, and then his final argument was practical, but he concluded each one of those arguments with these kinds of statements. For example, in verse 19, if you look at verse 19, this is his first conclusion to his uh, uh, logical argument. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
What did we say that was all about? There's much more to life, isn't there, than just this life. That's the conclusion. There's resurrection from the dead to come. His second motivation is in verse 28, when the Lord Jesus Christ, having accomplished all that he must do, is going to hand over everything to God the Father. Notice the end of verse 28, that God may be all in all. In other words, so that God gets the glory or that God is sovereign, God is recognized as such, everything is subject to Jesus, uh, to God, because of what Jesus has done. That's his conclusion to the theological argument that he gave us, verses 20 through 28. And then we saw last week, you remember, uh, this argument from the practical aspect, and Paul says in verse 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. Paul was willing to suffer everything that he suffered because he believed that one day he would be with Christ, he would be raised from the dead. So he has proven from the historical eyewitness accounts that the scriptures spoke about in verses 1 through 11 through verse, chapter, verse 12, sorry, into verse 34, he has proven this subject, the resurrection of the dead. But now, in verses 35 through 49, the Apostle Paul wants to treat the subject of the body, the nature of the resurrection body. So let's remind ourselves that this entire chapter is predicated or is built upon two questions. The first question is in verse 12. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That's the first question. He answers that first question about the resurrection of the dead from verse 12 through verse 34. Now... A second question, verse 35, which by the way actually consists of two questions, but it is his second question to begin with. Someone will ask, notice verse 35, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So first question, verse 12, second question, verse 35. And both questions, verse 12, verse 35, are vitally connected to the fact of verses 1 through 11, that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is risen or is raised from the dead. There is no resurrection of the dead, there is no resurrection of the body, unless Jesus himself is raised from the dead. Jesus himself proves by his resurrection of the dead that the dead, all the dead as we believe, shall be raised in a day to come. So both questions answer the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, or he stands behind that. So as I've said, you'll notice that these questions are answered by the Apostle Paul. Now, notice verse 35, two questions, they belong together. Notice the first question, the first part in verse 35, how are the dead raised? Good question, I would say. Second part, with what kind of body do they come? Well, I'd like to know that. But then Paul says, you foolish person for asking those kinds of questions. And these questions, of course, that are asked here by someone, verse 35, have to do with the nature of the resurrection body. Not the nature of the resurrection itself, of the dead, but what kind of body will we have in the resurrection in the future. Now, if I were to take a, a vote or a poll, which I would never do, and ask you, well, what kind of body are you going to have in the resurrection, you would be hard-pressed to define precisely what that body looks like. You might say to me, well, it would be like the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. You would be right. You would say it would be a new body. You would be right. But what does that look like? And there you might run into a brick wall because you find it hard to conceive of what this resurrection body is just going to be like. So, notice Paul says in verse 36, when he refers to the questioner, someone will ask in verse 35, he says, you foolish person. Now, why does he say that? Because those questions sound reasonable, don't they? 
I mean, you've, you've just talked about the resurrection of the dead. Fine. So at the end of that, Paul, what, what does that look like? The resurrection body. So on the surface, these questions are valid and they are reasonable. So why does Paul say, you foolish person, to ask that? The reason he says that is because it would appear that the objection to the resurrection or the doctrine of the resurrection from verse 12, right? How can some say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Rests on the assumption that our future bodies are just like our present bodies. And Paul perceives behind those questions that assumption that people are thinking, well, my body in the future is going to be like the body I have now, and so on. And so he says, no, that's wrong. You would be foolish to even consider that. The nature of my present body is not going to be the same as the nature of my future body. How do I know that? Because of verse 50. Flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of heaven or a kingdom of God. So the Corinthians are misunderstanding some of them, not all of them, are misunderstanding certain principles, and it is these principles that Paul is going to unfold to us, to the Corinthians, so that we might perceive, as far as we are able, the nature of the resurrection body, and what that will be like. So, how can the dead be raised? How can they go from a position of death to life? How can they go from this body to another body, to a new body? I say that because... Uh, I don't want you to get the idea that we're talking about you get a different body, you get a new body, but yet you are the same person, you are the same name, and all of that. But we'll talk a little bit more about that. Paul's conclusions to all of this, which is very theological, very doctrinal, deals with one thing. This is what he wants you to understand. The future body is not like your present body. And how good that will be. I mean, this present body is not so good breaking down, uh, it's getting weaker, it's feebler. As you get older, you recognize that more and more, don't you? You recognize it's not like when I'm 25 and at the height of my powers, nothing can defeat me. No, everything defeats me now, right? There's something about our bodies declining in age because of sin and disease and all of these things. So we all understand that when we talk about this present body, thank God my future body is not like this one. Because there will be no change to it throughout eternity. Okay, so, so Paul is dealing with the one thing that the future body, the resurrection body, is not like this present body. So how is he going to do that? The first thing I want you to notice is that what he's going to do is reveal the process, how that happens. Reveal the process. And the second thing he's going to give us are the results of the process. Just those two things. He's going to make known the process, reveal it to us, and then he's going to give us the results of that process. So let's talk about revealing the process. What a beautiful section we have before us in 1 Corinthians 15 from verse 35 onwards. First of all, you foolish person. I don't think Paul means that, of course, as a way or a means of contempt. I mean, even the Lord Jesus Christ upbraided his disciples, didn't he? Because you fools and slow of heart to believe all that I've told you. Those two disciples on the road to Emmaus and the rest of the eleven disciples as they doubted as to who he was. He even called them, O fools. So I don't think Paul is saying about this objector or this someone in verse 35 whom he calls a you foolish person. He is not meaning that as a means of contempt or derision. What he wants the person who asks the question to understand is that they're not thinking right. They're not thinking clearly about making a connection between the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of their future body or the body that is to be raised. So the foolish statement seems to be built around the fact that the body cannot live again. Why? Because it dies. But the Apostle Paul says, no, the body must live again and cannot live again unless it dies. So it must die first 
in order to live. And this is the principle I think that the apostle wants to convey here. So look at verse 36. You foolish person. Now here's the principle. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So this is Paul's principle to, uh, to answer the, the questions of verse 35. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And in order to reveal the process to us and to the Corinthians, he gives illustrations. And they are good illustrations. There are illustrations in verses 36 through 39 that are taken from nature. You can see them every day with your own eyes. You can perceive what he means, the process, and what he's talking about. So the principle, you should write this down, verse 36, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. In other words, it must die in order to live. That's what Paul's saying, right? And his example, to prove the principle, look at verse 37 is the sowing of a seed. The simple sowing of a seed, of any seed. So to prove the principle of verse 36, he gives us the illustration, verse 37, of sowing a seed. Now you know the life of any seed, of all seeds, is only seen in what it produces. So every time you go to Home Depot or wherever it is, and you buy a packet of seeds flowers, vegetables, and you open up that packet and you see those little seeds as you pour them there. As you look at those little seeds there, you recognize that's not what I'm going to eat. It's what it produces. That is the real thing. But you recognize at the same time there's life in that little seed, and it has the power to produce something else to produce the vegetable, to produce the fruit, whatever it is. So the life of any seed is ultimately only seen in what it produces. Now this past year we, we have a banana tree in our backyard and uh, I observe that banana tree, it grows so high and it's beautiful and for, for months I look at it and I'm waiting when, when, when is the fruit going to come? And many times I've looked at that banana tree and said I must cut this banana tree down like the man in the Bible who wanted to cut down uh, his tree, and I've looked at that and said, I always cut it down because it's never going to produce fruit. And then, sure enough, one morning I will come out there, and there, out of the whole stalk, is this long pod at the end from which all the bananas will come. And I say, Ha! Ah, there's something at last, some life from this banana tree that grew from little, tiny little banana is growing up now, and now I'm seeing finally the evidence, but I only find that proven to me when I actually see the banana and eat the banana. And then I say, it's done it. It's produced. What is in the seed is seen and proven by what the results are. So a tomato seed remains a tomato seed as long as it's a seed. That's what it is. It simply holds the promise, holds the pledge of a future tomato plant with hundreds of tomatoes. And that's what we're all looking forward to, right? It's not the seeds that matter. They must be sown in the ground. Or as Paul puts it here, they must die. They must be buried. They must die, enter the state of death, it would appear, for life to come forth from it. This is his illustration to tell us about the old body and the new body and what it will be like. So, the seed holds promise, doesn't it, for life to come. Now, when you think about that with respect to your body this morning, your body must die, that's the principle in order for that body to be raised, but when it is raised, it is a new body. It is not like flesh and blood, and it doesn't require food and drink to sustain it. There's something different about it. In fact, throughout the passage, it seems far superior, far more glorious and better, that resurrection body, which makes it all worthwhile, right? Because I want to know, ultimately, is it better there than here? And yes, it is. So, the seed must be planted, the seed must die, and only then does life come forth from the ground. So, what comes forth is not the seed. What comes forth is the plant bearing fruit, vegetables, flowers, containing also within it seeds for future production as well. 
But I'm not interested in the seeds per se. I'm interested in the fruit that I get from having sown my seeds in the ground. So what you sow is not the same as the fruit which results, but it's only a seed. Look how Paul states it in verse 37. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, a little seed, a bare seed. Uh, perhaps it's a, of wheat or of some other grain. So we all recognize this principle, right? The ancient world, the world of Jesus, the first century, an agrarian society, very familiar with seeds being planted, seeds being sown, and producing whatever they were planting and hoped to produce. Every farmer today recognizes the same principle. Every farmer today engages in the same principle. You must plant the seed in order to reap the harvest. Unless you plant the seed, it remains alone. It remains a seed still. You must plant it. You must let it die. You must bury it. You must cover it over. And then you anticipate something glorious and something new. So the Corinthians, they know this principle. They're familiar with it. And I think we can say the same. You sow the seed in order to reap the harvest and produce the fruit. Now here's the thing. I don't understand everything. That's not a lot, by the way that takes place under the ground. I don't understand all that's happening from that tiny little tomato seed, for example, and they're really tiny, very thin, not much to them. I don't understand what happens when you bury that in the ground and you water it and then you hope for something to come. And whenever the little green sprout comes up, you're just amazed that from that little kernel, that little seed, such life is evident. Don't we see that, uh, I suppose, with our oak trees around here? I mean, a little oak uh, acorn is, is like that, but when you plant it, look what the result is in the end. Massive trees that you wish to cut down because they're so big, and there's too many leaves, right? But that's what happens. So I don't understand everything that takes place under the soil. There's a mystery to that. I know God knows. I know God knows exactly how that functions and that works. I know, though, that I must plant that seed, I must bury that seed, in order to see what comes forth. I have to do that. If I refrain from do that, keep my seeds in my little packet, and hope that somehow they'll jump out of the packet and produce tomatoes, it's never going to happen. It must be buried. It must be placed under soil. And there the mysterious work of this transformation from death to life takes place. I know something happens because I see the evidence. Just recently I had five leftover beans, seeds. And I thought, well, what am I going to do with these five seeds? Well, I put, planted them and I forgot about them and sure enough, two of them have come up. Now, you know, the beans come up like this, right? And then they unfold like that with their two leaves. And you say, it's magnificent. And we're looking, you see the dirt, but you're looking, because you planted the seed, you're looking for life to come forth from it. And how exciting that always is. So, so now we know the principle, right? The principle of verse 36, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So the seed has to be died, it has to die, it has to be buried, and it's a picture of death, isn't it? Now all Paul is saying is that's what happens to your body. It dies. But in resurrection, life comes to it, right? You know, in our new birth, regeneration, that is exactly what we experience. The creative power of God Himself is placed within us to change us, to give us new birth, new life. And notice the language we use, right? New birth, new life, and so on. Spiritual life, because I once was spiritually dead in my trespasses and sins, but now God has done something, He's made us alive, and He's given us life. And this is the same kind of principle, right? The regeneration principle, the resurrection principle are the same kind of thing. Something is dead, something has died, and then life is invested and life comes forth. So whatever comes up, notice verse 38, is of God, but, but God, notice the text, verse 38, but God 
You plant it, but God gives it a body as he has chosen. And notice, but God gives it, the seed that you planted, a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed, its own body. So not only has God made the seed, created the seed, Paul says, but he has also brought about the result of the process of you sowing the seed and burying the seed. That's exactly what Jesus taught, by the way. Taught the same privilege or principle, I should say, the same process and the same result in John chapter 12 and verse 24. Truly, truly, he said, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Jesus taught the same thing. And the Lord Jesus, of course, is speaking about his own death and his own resurrection, as he used this illustration or picture. Now, I don't don't want you to miss verse 38, right, in Paul's illustration. God gives to it, the seed, a body as he's chosen. But here it is, and to each kind of seed, and there are thousands and millions of kinds of seeds, to each kind of seed, its own body. If you sow carrot seeds, what do you expect? carrots, right? You don't expect roses. It's never going to happen, ever, right? Period. In fact, your expectation of whatever you plant and sow, that expectation is exactly connected to that seed. Tomatoes, give me tomatoes. Oranges, give me oranges, and so on. But you cannot see that carrot when you hold the seed in your hand. It must die. It must be buried. So too it is with our body, Paul wants us to understand. And what it will be, I cannot really know it unless it dies and is raised again. Now I haven't experienced that yet. That is my hope. That is your hope, right? My hope because the Lord Jesus Christ went through the same procedure. He died. He was raised. He is the first fruits, as Paul says back up in the chapter. And because I have a hope in Christ and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and He is my life, I expect to die and be raised from the dead unless Jesus comes. And that process of change takes place also, as Paul will tell us in verses 50 to 58. Change in the twinkling of an eye, which is a resurrection change, which involves some kind of death to the old body, and the new body comes forth if we are caught up when Jesus comes. So, Paul says there's a process. Paul says there's a result. There's a process uh, that's of the seed being buried, and the result is the fruit that comes forth. It's all based on that principle in verse 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Now, you know, the amazing thing about that is that with all this amazing diversity, Tomatoes, carrots, orchids, whatever it is you think about. They never deviate from their kind. Look at verse 39. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. So verse 38 says God gives to each kind of seed its own body, and verse 39 explains that if you are a person, human being, then... That's what you have. This is our flesh. I look around here this morning. Nobody is, nobody is strange. We all are the same, right? Same flesh. So too with dogs and cats. So too with birds. And so too with fish. So not all flesh, bird flesh, human flesh, fish flesh, is the same, Paul says. But in the flesh, there is this production of the same kind. So tomatoes, tomatoes, carrots, carrots, and so on. Human beings, human beings. And I want you to notice that they don't mix and they never mingle, ever, right? So men and women cannot produce ospreys, right? Cannot produce bears, cannot produce grouper fish. It will never happen, cannot happen. Because God gave this kind of flesh to us and that kind of flesh to them. And it doesn't go the other way either, right? 
Why is that? Because of the principle that's back in Genesis, right? In creation. Kind produces kind. The seed produces what you expect from that seed. Now evolutionists, of course, want you to believe otherwise. But the great problem they have, of course, is their lack of all these intermediaries that you can see that give evidence of this process. There's no, there's no middle ground. There's no three-quarter ground. There's no one-eighth ground. Oh, that person has got some wings on their back. That's a remarkable thing. I've never seen that. I don't ever expect to see that because that's not our flesh. That's for birds. By the way, the birds can never produce a human being. Take the biggest bird. Can't be done. Nor can they mix. Is it not our depravity and defilement that seeks to intermingle sexes and kinds and all of these things? To change what God says can never be changed, which I have established, seed, flesh, one kind, the same kind for those kinds. And yet men and women today would have you believe otherwise, and yet what is the evidence that they would give to you? I've never seen it. You can look and look and look for the next million years, you'll never find it. It's never going to happen, right? And notice, if there's a body involved, here's the principle. You apply the principle to the body. If there's a body involved that dies, what is going to be raised? The body. So the body dies and the body is raised, right? But with a difference, verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, so there's a change in the body. And notice, this principle holds not only in animate creation, but also in inanimate creation. So the principle is the same. Human beings produce human beings. Fish and birds produce fish and birds. And there's no deviance. In other words, Paul's principle is right. A seed produces exactly its kind and if it wants to produce more of its kind, it must die and be buried and come forth. And that's what he's kind of saying lies behind the principle of what happens with our bodies when we die and when we get a resurrection body. That's the first illustration. Second illustration, look at verse 40. In verse 40 he says, there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. And then he says... But there's a distinction in their glory, right? So in verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another kind. So there's a distinction between heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. And verse 41 shows, it gives an illustration, there is one glory for the sun, another glory for the moon, and another glory for the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Now I know there are some places in the United States, way out there in the deserts perhaps, where it's dark and there's no lights and you can, you can look up into the heavens and you'll see the Milky Way and the magnificence of it. If you come from the southern hemisphere like I do, you don't see the southern hemisphere in the north. You don't see any of the stars in the north that I see or saw as a child growing up in the south. When you look at the Milky Way in the south, it is absolutely unbelievable. It's true. The heavens declare what? The glory of God. But yet you know when you look at them, you can see with your eyes that they differ and are distinct in glory. If you look at the sun, the sun's not the moon. If you look at the moon, the moon's not the sun. If you look at those stars, they're not the same, but they're stars. But they differ, Paul says, in glory. And you can see that, he says. So there are heavenly bodies, there are earthly bodies, and their distinction is their glory. And so even among themselves, they show this vital distinction uh, between themselves. So there is, there is likeness in kind, and that the sun is its kind, and the moon is its kind, and the stars are their kind. And we see the, the distinction in their diversity and in their glory. Notice verse 41. One star or four star differs from star in glory. And that brings Paul to his statement in the first part of verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Don't you like that statement? 
He's just given us this long practical illustrations that we all know from what we observe, what we see, what we know. And he says then, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. The process from verse 36 through verse 41, which he has defined... He says, that's how the dead are raised. Verse 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? How are they raised? They must die. They must be buried. There must be no life. They must remain. They, they must die, and then from that death there will come forth resurrection. By the way, you can only have resurrection if you have death. Okay? Because it's new life. It's brand new life. The Greek text tells us that it is life out from among the dead. That's what resurrection means. Life from the dead. The dead don't have life. So where does life come from? From God. It is God who gives life to the body in the grave just as God gives life to the seed that is buried. And so on. So this process is defined by Paul. So the body dies, the body is raised. But what Paul wants us to understand is there's a difference between the body in the grave that died and the resurrection body. There's something distinct, unique about them. So you plant an orange seed in the ground and an actual orange on the tree is what you're really looking for. When you look at the seed in your hand and you look at the orange on the tree, you say... They're the same. They're orange. But they're different, aren't they? The one is the seed holding promise of this, the fruit that you eat. And of course, that's the proof, right? That, you, that there's a difference. Try and eat the seed. But you want the fruit. That's the real proof that there was life in that seed that you buried and that died. All right. I think we all understand that. It's simple, isn't it? So Paul, from verse 42 onwards now, is going to deal with the second question of verse 35. Look at verse 35. With what kind of body do they come? What kind of body do they come? What kind of body is the resurrection body? Now I suppose the disciples might, having seen Jesus raised from the dead, might say, we didn't really see a difference. Except suddenly he was there and he wasn't there before. He just appeared. So there's, there's something different about that. Jesus even says to Mary Magdalene, right, do not cling to me. Because there's a change. There's a change in our relationship, Mary. I ascend and I ascend to the Father and there's a distinction between me and the Father and you and the Father. And therefore a distinction between you and me. Because Jesus is raised from the dead. So this idea here, what kind of body do they come, the Apostle Paul is going to say, you will see the results, you will see the difference, but it's hard to define that, because when you look at the body, it looks the same, but it's not flesh and blood. Because flesh and blood do not inherit the kingdom of God. But it looks the same. Jesus, in his risen body, raised body, resurrected body, can eat fish in the presence of his disciples to prove that he is, he was among them. Yet it was not necessary for Jesus to eat fish. So too in the resurrection body. It will not be necessary to eat, but it's obviously clear in the Bible that we do sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom and eat and drink. But yet those things are not necessary to preserve or give us life like we do now when we eat our breakfast and our lunch to sustain us. No, we don't need any of that. So what kind of body is the resurrection body? So now Paul goes to his second thing, the results of the process. He's revealed the process, but now the results from verse 42 to verse 49. And the results, by the way, are seen in comparing the condition of the present body with the condition of the resurrected body. So look at verse, first of all, verse 44. Two bodies. Verse 44, it is sown, what kind of body? A natural body, right? But look what it is raised. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, are those different? Yes, they are. One is natural and one is spiritual. So we have now 
two de definitions to the body. One is said to be a natural and the other is said to be a spiritual body. Now look at the process and he includes the process, verse 42, 43 and 44, by two words. So verse 42, what is sown is. Notice what is raised is. The word sown and the word raised. Verse 43, it is sown. It is raised. It is sown. It is raised. Verse 44, it is sown. A natural body. It is raised. A spiritual body. And notice the differences between that which is sown and that which is raised, right? So what are the differences? Look at your natural body. Verse 42 and through 44. He says, what is sown is perishable. That's the first thing. My body is perishable. In verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. And verse 43, it is sown in weakness. And it is sown, verse 44, a natural body. What do all of those mean? This is you right now. This is me right now, right? My body perishable, sown in dishonor, sown in weakness, sown a natural body. It simply means that all of us are subject to the prevailing conditions of a ruined, fallen, sinful nature. That's what sin does. It kills us. It kills us, all of us. It's sin that brings us to the grave, ultimately. Our wickedness, our sinfulness, our sin. So our earthly bodies, the body you have right now, doesn't matter what age you are, you could be 18 years of age, the prime of life, you could be 90 years of age, doesn't matter, our earthly bodies are, number one, always tending towards decay. Have you discovered that? Because I have. It's tending to decay. It's always downwards, right? It amazes me that you, you have all these people going to the gym to improve their natural body. I want to go in there and preach and say, it's still perishable, right? It's not improving. It's tending to decay, always, right? That's the first thing. Not only that, but it's subject to disease. Haven't you discovered that for yourself? The diseases start to spring up all the time. We're contending with disease. We're subject to... This is what sin has done, by the way. So not only tending towards decay and subject to disease, but thirdly, liable to death. Nobody escapes death. Nobody gets away from death. The wages of sin is death. Sin leads to death, to spiritual death, to physical death. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, Adam and Eve died spiritually. And they would die physically. So, our natural bodies are always liable to death. Cannot escape it. So you can't escape the decay, you can't escape the disease, though people want to. Right? They want to. They can't escape it. And finally, fourthly, we are destined for dissolution. What do I mean by that? Well, ultimately in this passage, Paul says we go to dust. That's all we will be in the grave. Dust. It's not a very uh, flattering view of ourselves. But that's where sin is. Didn't God say that to Adam? You, were, you came from the dust, and to dust you shall return. Job even confesses the dustiness of his nature. We're heading to the grave, to the soil, to dust, destined for dissolution. Now, you know what? That's what Adam did and brought upon all of us. Because verse 22 says, as in Adam, all die. As in Adam, all die. So Paul pictures the body sown in the grave, dead, right? As in Adam, all die. This is what Adam has done. Now contrast that picture with the body raised, the resurrection body, which the Apostle Paul says is a spiritual body. So look at verse 42. What is raised is imperishable. Ah, there's no tending to decay, right? Imperishable. Verse 43, it is raised in glory not subject to disease or anything like that. 
It's raised in power, verse 43. And it's raised a spiritual body. That's what you anticipate, don't you? This world is not all there is. We anticipate change. Glorious change. The change is so vital and so distinct in verses 42 through 44, one you want nothing to do with when you look at what you can get. Right? And will you, I think it might be helpful if, I, if, I turn, if you turned with me to 2 Corinthians. Just go over a few chapters. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. So, Paul says, We know that if the tent, that's your body right now, that if the body, the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, still in this body, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. I think that's just the, that's the difference right there. That what is represented as mortal, meaning it dies always, now is swallowed up by life itself and can never die again and is never subject to anything that Adam brought about. He, verse 5, who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit right now within us as a guarantee. Now notice, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose. I didn't come up with this idea. How am I going to get to glory? Because you have to get to glory, right? The only way you get to glory is by dying. And let's not mistake that death is a frightful thing. Paul just told us the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So death is an enemy. But we all must die. Why do we die? Because all in Adam die. And the consequence of Adam's sin and our sin is this continual dissolution, decay, disease, death. But when the resurrection happens, life swallows up death. Isn't that glorious? Life actually just consumes death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Do you remember how Jesus is going to do that? He's going to take Hades and he's going to take death and he's going to cast them into the lake of fire. That's the second death. A living death forever and ever. Whereas for the believer, a living life forever and ever. A life that has swallowed up death by resurrection. And that I think is the distinction or the difference or what the body is going to be like. So, one more verse in 2 Corinthians. Go to chapter 4 and look at verse 16. So, back up from chapter 5, chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self, our outer man, what is that? That's your body, right? Is wasting away. Our inner man, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now, don't miss that. Something is happening to you as a Christian every day. Yes, the body, because of all what's out there and within me, is dying and will die. But there's another thing in me operating, a principle of life. I am being renewed day by day. And listen, all of that is connected to in Adam or in Christ. That the image of Adam and the image of Christ reflect that. And I'm going to show you that because that's exactly where Paul goes. So what a difference between a natural body, the one body possesses death, possesses death, it dies, and the other body, which is spiritual, produces life, possesses life. So death is the consequence of Adam and his sin. Life is the consequence of Jesus, of his sacrifice and of his resurrection. And indeed of his exaltation to the Father's right hand because he continues his work 
His ministry of intercession on our behalf. So notice, there's an order to this, and it's observable. Verse 43, second, uh, sorry, verse 44, second part. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So what Paul is saying is, look, if you've got a natural body, you've got a spiritual body. Well, how do you get a spiritual body? Resurrection. That's how you get it. And that's the conclusion, Paul says, of the process. So why is there a natural body and also a spiritual body? Because of this principle of sowing and raising. That's why there's a natural body, must be sown, die. And that's why there's a spiritual body, because the natural body, which has to be sown, which has to die, gives forth to new life, to spiritual body. That's the principle. The old, the new, the natural, the spiritual. But now, Paul wants to explain that order, how that comes about and what it means. So look at verse 45 onwards. He's now going to tell us about this progression from the natural to the spiritual. So in order to have life, you go back to verse 36, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. That's the principle. So in order to have life, there has to first of all be death. But look at verse 46. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. So verse 46 springs from the order of verse 45 of Adam and Jesus. Thus it is written, verse 45, The first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now just contrast Adam and Jesus, right? In the text. I don't mean think about it. But look what Paul says about Adam and Christ. So look at verse 45. He calls Adam the first man. In verse 47, he says, the man from the earth. The man of dust, verse 47. And verse 48, the man of dust. What does all that convey to you? The first man who is from the earth, who is of the dust, he's natural. He's earthly. He dies. But look at Jesus, verse 45, the last Adam, that's who he is. Verse 47, the second man is from heaven. And verse 48, the man of heaven. And verse 49, the man of heaven. What a contrast, right? Adam, earthly, natural, dies. Jesus, heavenly, spiritual, glorious life. Now the real question is, who are you in? Who are you in? You in Adam? Then you die. You die spiritually, you die physically, you're dead spiritually, you die physically. You enter eternal eternity for spiritual death, the judgment of God, if you're in Adam. But if you're in Christ, all is new, all is life, all is heavenly. It's amazing to me when you consider how many people die, and all die, right? How many funerals we have around the world, in our own country, in our own city, where there is absolutely no hope. Nothing. They don't know what comes after, because they don't believe the Bible. They've got no idea. Some of them might believe that there's an immaterial part, but life after death, yeah, there's all of that, but they cannot define it. They cannot say, what is it? What does it look like? Where is it? How does it function? They've got nothing. In fact, they console themselves, some of them, by saying, well, I, I hope they're looking down from above on us. That's, what they, that's their hope. That's, that's what they think about their loved ones who have perished. What is that? Zero hope. Isn't that why we need the gospel? Isn't that why we must share the gospel, proclaim the gospel? Because by doing that, we are communicating life from death. Because as in Adam, we're all dead. But in Christ, we are made alive. What a difference between Adam, the first man, and Jesus, the last Adam. Notice verse 45. Adam became 
A living being, the, the word, Greek word is suke, became a living soul, which is exactly what Genesis 2 says. He became a living soul. God breathed into him the breath of life, or to put it another way, a living being, he was made. He was created by God. But look at Jesus. He is not made. He is not created. He became a life-giving spirit. How did Jesus become a life-giving spirit? He rose from the dead. He has the power of an endless life within him. He lives for eternity. And he communicates that life to his people. Which is how I am in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, being renewed in the inner man day by day because I possess and you possess in Jesus spiritual life. So Jesus became a life-giving spirit, raised from the dead. Or, as Paul reminded the Romans in chapter 1 and verse 4, that he was declared to be the Son of God with power through the resurrection of the dead. That is who Jesus is. Powerful, glorious, heavenly, exalted, the man who gives life, the man who came to save us, the man who died himself, bearing our sin, who took our judgment, bore the wrath, so that you and I might have life. And not just life like now, but spiritual life, new life, real life, eternal life, that lasts having begun now, forever and forever and forever. When I get my body, my resurrection body, that process is going to be complete. The immaterial, the soul, will be joined with the new body, that is what happens when Jesus comes, or in the resurrection, and so that I am complete. Now bear this in mind, dear congregation, the intermediate state, which is where every Christian goes now, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. This intermediate state is not a present with the Lord with a body. Okay, I hear all kinds of things at funerals. Oh, they're up there dancing in their bodies and all of that. What utter nonsense! They don't have a body yet. They, the body is awaiting the resurrection. That's still to come for all. So we must be careful how we communicate these things. Because there's, the, the Bible communicates them in the right way. Notice verse 45, that this Adam who is made, who is created, living being, that's his creation from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. And Paul quotes that. And, and the quote, by the way, is only the first part. Adam became a life, a, a living soul. The second part, the second or the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. It does not come from Genesis. But it comes from what Jesus accomplished by his death and by his resurrection. So notice, Adam is soul and body. Material, immaterial. He is earthly and he is natural, but Jesus is heavenly and Jesus is spiritual. Adam brought death, body dies. Jesus gives life, body raised. This is the order of verse 46, right? So verse 46, it is not the spiritual that is first, but it is the natural and then the spirit. So the Adam, the natural earthly man is first, but the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the spiritual heavenly man, he is subsequent. But you know what I think? Paul has reserved the best for last. Verse 48 and 49. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So if you belong to Adam, verse 48, right? What does that mean? It means you're like him. What does that mean? It means you're dust. That's all you are, dust. In Adam, no hope. Death. Dust. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, then notice what you are like. You are like Him. As is the man from heaven, so are we like Him. Heavenly, glorious, spiritual. So every Christian, by virtue of their being born again, their spiritual new birth has begun in that process 
to bear the image of the Lord Jesus Christ and every day more and more we are being transformed by the Holy Spirit in sanctification to become like the Lord Jesus Christ. That process has already begun the moment you trusted Christ. You are being conformed. You are being transformed. You are being changed into the likeness of Christ. That's a big thing to aim for in this life. Because if this is what's happening now, and I'm being renewed day by day, why not spend all that I can, all my mind, all my heart, to be like Jesus Christ? Because that's where I'm going, right? That's where I'm going. So every day, we are more and more. Now that, that assumes, by the way, dear congregation, that you are yielding. Because sometimes you can be struggling sin up and down all over the place and you, you give more into sin and more in, than, than into the Spirit of God. You're not yielding to the Spirit. You're fighting sin and you are overcome by sin and you love sin and you like sin. So your spiritual life lies in tatters. Your spiritual life is weakened by those kinds of things. Don't go there. Don't play with sin. Don't go there. It will weaken you. Your conscience will be troubled. Yes, the process is in place. We are being renewed. But wouldn't it be better to seek Christ every day, to go to Him and say, Lord, change me. Make me like Yourself. Because that's what's happening here, Paul says. So by virtue of the resurrection, we shall be like Christ. Like Him. Complete transformation, isn't that verse 49? Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, yes, just as I once was like Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Be like Jesus. Be like Jesus, right? So I was in Adam, it was death, now I'm in Christ, and it's life, and it's the resurrection, Paul says, that completes that process. So what I anticipate I shall be, I ought to prepare for now. Because this is, I know what's coming. Spiritual, heavenly, glorious, like Jesus. I must prepare now. I must anticipate now what I need to do to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us we are eagerly awaiting our adoption as sons equals the redemption of our bodies. Romans chapter 8 verse 23. When does this resurrection take place? When Jesus comes, right? I mean, look at verse 23. Each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So when is all of this going to take place? When Jesus comes. That's why I must prepare myself for Jesus coming. Because when Jesus comes, this change is going to take place for me. For you. That's why Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 3, 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven we await the Savior who's going to transform our lowly body, this body of dust, to be like unto His own glorious body. I'm awaiting the Savior to come. Because when He comes, change. Later on in the chapter, in the twinkling of an eye, Blink your eye, changed. Oh, what a, what a glorious hope we have, right? All because of Jesus Christ. Not because of ourselves. If you are not in Christ, you're still in Adam. And whatever resurrection, when that happens for you, it will be unto judgment, unto condemnation. But if you have Christ, you have eternal life now. You are being changed into His image. So I want to ask the question, what must I do until resurrection comes or happens? Or until I die or Jesus comes? Number one, I must die to myself. I must die to self. What does that mean? What does that look like? Jesus said, if anyone wishes to follow me or come after me, let him deny himself, number one. Let him pick up his cross daily, number two. And then come follow me. 
Is that what you're doing? Is that what I'm doing? Deny myself, pick up my cross, to be like Jesus, to go to the place of death, to die to sin every day, to be like Him, and then follow Him. Where He goes, I go. What He says, I believe. I must deny myself. I must die to sin and to self. Secondly, I must walk then in newness of life. If you ever read Romans 6 and 7, right, it's all about this change between the old and the new. So die to the old, put off the old, like Colossians 3 also says. That I must walk in newness of life, I must mortify the old man, mortify the flesh, put to death the deeds of the flesh, put on Christ, because those who have put on Christ are crucified with Christ and do not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So I must walk in this newness of life. I deny myself and I walk in this new life. And thirdly, I should be rejoicing as a Christian because of what Jesus has done for me and what Jesus is going to do for me. I should be a happy person, a happy man, a rejoicing, a thankful man that Jesus has saved me. Because in Adam, wrath, death, nothing the judgment of God, but in Jesus Christ, hope, salvation, everlasting life, right? So the body is going to be raised, but it has to die. It has to be sown in the ground, has to go to dust so that it can come forth in glory. So Paul has shown us the process, and Paul has shown us the results of the process. So now you know, and I know, what is going to happen. From verse 49, the body will be raised. I don't know exactly what that's like, but Paul's given me an indication. It's spiritual. It's in power. It's in glory. It's, it's, it's this beautiful change that's coming about. At the moment, you and I are subjects of grace. One day, subject of glory. Thomas Watson the Puritan said that the grave is a long home for the body, but heaven is our last home for the new body. Let's pray together. Now, Father, thank you so much for your word. This great teaching by the Apostle Paul on this doctrine of the resurrection, which the Corinthians were questioning and had some issues about. Thank you for his clarifications. Thank you for the help that he gives to us. And now we pray that you'd help us to meditate more in your word about this great subject because it pertains to how we live right now. Let us in this sanctification that we are in, engaged in be putting ourselves to death more and more and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ to be like him. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who helps us, who renews us day by day. Thank you that we are being transformed and conformed to the likeness and the image of the man from heaven, the last Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. We await for him, the Savior then, to come for us and to change us. And should we go to the grave, we long for the day when Jesus shall come, the trumpets shall sound, the dead shall be raised first, and we shall be changed. We shall be like him because we shall see him as John tells us, as he is. And every person who has this hope purifies themselves even as Jesus Christ is pure. So thank you for your, this word. Help us to believe it and to be thankful for it. And bring about by your Holy Spirit the converting, conforming work that needs to be done in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Now, will you take your hymn?